Okay, if you've got a Bible, could you please turn to Exodus chapter 34 and to read the first uh, 10 verses. We're going through a series on the life of Moses. And uh, this is entitled, Moses Makes New Tablets Because He'd Made Some Before. This is nothing to do with aspirins, disprins, anything else that you might think a tablet is. This is just a tablet of stone. Well, they could be tablets of stone as well, really, couldn't they? But it's not those. The Lord said to Moses, uh, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, just, just, just don't, in case you forget this, Moses, which you broke. <laughs> Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of a mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Do you find this bit amazing? Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Isn't this extraordinary? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father's children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? Moses quickly bowed his head. You would, wouldn't you? Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favour in your sight, O Lord, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us, take us for your inheritance. The sheer fact that Exodus 34 exists in Scripture is proof that we worship a God of mercy. The second time that God has met Moses on the mountain to make a covenant with the people of Israel And when Moses comes down the mountain for the first time, the people have actually fallen in love with the work of their own hands. They were worshipping a golden calf. The covenant that God made uh, with Moses the first time went like this. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession amongst all the nations, amongst all the peoples, for the earth is mine 
and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Moses, with that buzzing in his ears, comes down the mountain to find that the people have made this golden calf. Instead of trusting God, they had become restless and decided that they preferred the value of their own workmanship rather than God's workmanship. So they exchanged the glory of God for an image made in their own glory and worshipped a golden calf which ended up in an orgy. And if you think about this act, and maybe I need to think about me, I perhaps would have come to the end of my tether with these people. They had been unbelieving at the Red Sea. No, this can't possibly happen. Seas don't part and all that sort of stuff. They'd grumbled with God in the wilderness and yet he'd provided for them uh, manna and quail. So this rebellion with the golden calf, well, in my view, should have ended God's patience. I would have used the, the, the verses, that, the, the words that Moses used at the end of this. I would have just said, you stiff-necked people, enough. But here we are, we're on the mountain again. Awaiting the revelation of God. The people have not been destroyed And the sheer fact of this is proof that you and I have a God of mercy. That we just live so close to the line. But God's line is in a different place to ours. And we exist because of the mercy of God. We breathe, we live, we speak in our little houses wherever we might be in the world because God is a God of mercy. It is a wonderful experience that I do not understand. God proclaims his name to Moses. But there's something more amazing than the sheer fact that God is willing to meet with Moses again. It's actually what he says when he describes his name. Exodus 34 and verse 5 says this, The Lord descended in a a cloud and stood there with Moses. Isn't that balmy? Absolutely. If somebody tapped you on the shoulder and just, you know, it's, it's the Lord. You would leg it. But I just think, isn't this an extraordinary extension of the mercy of God that God himself would want to come and stand right next to man, speak with him and give the guys another go. And it says that what he said to him was that he proclaimed the name of the Lord. If, the, if God stood next to me, I would, you would know, wouldn't you? You wouldn't think that I would know... Because I would be in a state of, I don't know, excitement and fear. But it says that he he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And it says he cries out. Can you imagine that for a second? Here is Moses. Here is the Lord. And the Lord cries out. You would jump, wouldn't you? You just 
be in a state of disrepair. The Lord is standing next to me and he cries out. The Lord, oops, sorry about that. Stand still. The Lord, no, the Lord, the Lord, or if you want to be doing in Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then, so that Moses understands what it means, the Lord, he clarifies who is standing in front of him. So he says, standing in front of you, Moses, or to the side, is a God of mercy, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is who is standing next to you. The next bit, it says, and Moses got down on his knees and bowed his head and worshipped. Wouldn't you? Now, we haven't got time to go into this. But by his spirit, the same God is next to you right now. We need to be as moved as Moses in the presence of God when we gather together. He's here. This God is in before you, behind you, underneath you, around you. He is here. But there are two problems with this d- description. And I've noticed that by sorting these out, not only, Steve, you thought that you got the most complicated one. I'm just going to say, Steve, I now think that I got the most complicated one. Because when I read this, Steve, I didn't realise that theologically speaking, there were problems in this passage. I just thought, this is a wonderful passage. I'd love to preach on the slow to anger and all that sort of stuff. And then I realised it is full of controversy. And I think, well, how much time do you give to the controversy? And how much? So I'm going to try and clear up the controversy. And here it is. I want you to come with me. God is the Lord, Yahweh, the God who is, the God who is free, the God who is almighty, and the God who is merciful. But if you notice, we have to ask the question, who does God forgive and who doesn't he forgive? Why? Because if you, re- if you look into that passage, it says that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, verse 7. And then the passage goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Well, so the problem is, how can he forgive the guilty and not yet clear the guilty? Or who are the guilty he forgives and who are the guilty that he refuses to forgive? And this is the problem that it caused me. And I just thought one day I'd like just an easy passage to preach on because I wouldn't have to do this. So what I did is that I found out that you can, um, you can look up in passages to find out in the Bible if somebody else uses this passage. I didn't know you could do that. I've got books, you see. I don't have computer, I'm not IT, whatever you call it. So I put into 
the, my little computer and ask who in, and I put this in, I, I put in, slow to anger, do, smooth, smooth, do, 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 and I've even found out that you don't have to put short words into Google. You can keep going. That was a revelation to me. So I thought, I'll copy and cut the whole passage out. So I copied and cut that passage out. I put it into Google, and I pressed the button. Shatunk! And I found out that this passage was not used just in this, in this passage here. That in the Old Testament, it is used time and time again. Revelation to the old pastor. So, and I found out that two people use this exact passage. So here we go. They are Joel and the other one is David Simpkins. Jonah. <laughs> well, it might be Jeremiah, but I'm going to... That's the t- in my Google search, I had two. And if you want me to do Jeremiah, we just have to extend it for another half an hour. But I'm going to believe Dave Simpkins because he's older than me. But the two that I got in Google were this. So, in, jo- in Joel 2, verses 12 to 13, it says that God is a rebellious people. And this is what Joel the prophet says. Ye- Joel... God says to the rebellious people, yes. Look, I've had enough problems with Google. Don't start, I mean, let's start again. Wipe that out of the passage, take a deep breath. In Joel 2, 12 to 13, God says to the rebellious people, breathe. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart and with fasting with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Stop looking in Jeremiah, Dave Simpkins. And Joel goes, listen to me, and Joel goes on to encourage the people. Here he comes, ready? Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and repents of evil. Okay. So Joel is quoting the Exodus 34, verse 6 passage. And what he's saying is, is encouraging the people that if they return to the Lord, he will turn away from the evil that he is about to bring on them. So the assumption is that the people whom the Lord will not forgive are the unrepentant people who will not return to God with all their heart. Therefore, forgiveness is for the unrepentant. Refusal of forgiveness is for the unrepentant. Okay, Joel. There was a mix-up. I know. I'll do the last passage again. Forgiveness is for... Look, I've, I've not slept. Do you want me to go into this? Why I haven't slept for four days? Okay. Right. Would you like this to go on iTunes? No. Then bear with me, else we go to the World Wide Web with this. Okay. (laughs) Forgiveness is for the repentant. The refusal of forgiveness is for the unrepentant. Is that okay? Okay. Jonah. Jonah uses the same passage, quotes the same words. Are you still there in Jeremiah yet? Oh, good lad. Okay, Jonah uses the same passage. Jonah sees things in exactly the same way. You remember the story? He preaches to the Ninevites. They repent. God spares them. Jonah is angry with God for being so merciful. In Jonah three ten down to 4, 
2, it says that when God saw what they did, they turned away from their evil way. God relented from his anger and did not do what he was going to do. Now, this wound up Jonah, if you remember. He got angry, he prayed to the Lord, and he said to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said that you would do? And that's why I bogged off and and wanted to flee, because I knew that in the end that you would be what? Absolutely right. He said, I knew that you would be a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah quotes this passage to explain that God has turned away from wrath from sinful people who will repent. This is God's nature. It's his name. It's who he is. But notice that Jonah agrees with Joel that whether God forgives the Ninevites or not depends on whether or not the Ninevites repent themselves and turn from their evil ways. This is the controversy bit. We'll be over this in a minute and get to the good bit. Okay. Let's summarize this. Then we can move on. And then we'll find there's another problem. Rat bags. Now, sorry. Now, let's go back to the words from Mount, on Mount Sinai. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. On the one hand, the Lord says that he forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. But on the other end, he says that he will not clear the guilty. Yet all sinners are guilty. So which guilty ones will he forgive and which guilty ones will he not forgive? The answer of Joel and Jonah is that he will forgive the guilty who turn from their sin, who turn to God with their own heart. The guilty who spurn his offer of mercy, he will not clear. That's the issue. If people are not Christians... If they turn to him, if they repent, they will receive mercy. (coughs) So hopefully we've cleared up one controversy, okay? The repentant receive mercy. That's it. Why didn't you just say that, Nigel? Because I got lost in Google, all right? Okay, here's the second problem. The father's sins and the children's sins. Now, have you not heard this one before? I've heard this in all sorts of Pentecostal, charismatic things, that basically I am like I am because of my father. Yeah? How many times have we heard that? Actually, I'm nothing like my father. Actually, I'm more like my mother. My father was six foot something and skinny. My mother was small and don't go into that, okay? So, here we go. Let's look at the father's sins and the, the children's sin. The second problem. We will get to the good bit. We finish with the good bit. From verse 7, it says that God visits the iniquity of the father upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There it is. So does that mean that actually Rachel is a product of who she is because of the grandfather that she never met? Okay? My, my grandfather, as it were, the great-grandfather, four generations. So the guy, if you, come through, if you come through my front door, look left, you'll see a picture of my grandfather. Anybody that's been there has seen that? That's my grandfather. Is Rachel is as, as she is because of him. 
That's the question. Fourth generation. Well, she doesn't sell shoes. That's a good thing if you've seen the shop. But Ezekiel says something the opposite. He says in 1820, the soul that sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, for the father, for the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So how can these two passages be together in the Bible where one disagrees with the other? This is crucial. To see what Ezekiel is saying is that he has in mind a son who does not follow in the sinful footsteps of his father. But in Exodus, it's a, he has in mind, Moses has in mind, children who continue in their parents' sinful footsteps. You've got two different things. Ezekiel 18 verse 19. When the son has done what is lawful and right... And, what is, um, and has been careful to observe my statutes, he will live. In other words, the son won't die for his father's sins because he's not following in his father's footsteps. What is Moses saying? The parallel to Exodus 34 verse 7 in Exodus 20 verse 5 says that God visits the iniquity of his fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, the children share in the father's punishment because they share in the father's sins. That's the key point. And Ezekiel teaches us that if a child turns away from their sinful ways and the sinful ways of their father, they will not be punished for the sins of the father. And Exodus teaches us that a child that goes on sinning like its father will be punished as the father is punished. Do you see that? Let's try and summarize this. The more... We let sin get the upper hand in our lives, the more our children will suffer for it. Sin is a contagious disease. My children don't suffer because I have it. They catch it from me, the principles of it, and they suffer because I've taught it into their lives. Yes? And that's the controversy in Exodus 34 over. So... Do I inherit vague sins? No. Can I, can I continue sinning? Yes, because the values of my father and mother and their sin, I carry them on. Can I break from them? Yes, because I break from them cleanly and therefore I walk free from them because God deals with me as an individual and I don't have to pick up these things. And the problem is that that controversy has created an enormous amount of ministry over years when actually it's quite simple. It is quite simple. My children don't suffer because I have it. They catch it from me and then suffer. Let's move on. Hope. Dorothy, you're a bit loud then. (laughs) Let's put the problems behind us. 
and hear the message of God's mercy. I want us to go back to verse 6. The Lord comes down. He proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God, of gr- a God gracious and slow to anger and all that sort of stuff. Now, let me just try and address something here. There are two kinds of people that will hear these words. The two kinds of people are actually hard to help and counsel. But generally, when you are um, saying these things, you, you can fall into one or the other category. One thinks this, that he's, far, he's, he's too far gone to be forgiven. The other one thinks forgiveness is dead easy, all I need to do is ask. The one thinks that he is utterly disqualified in regard to everything they do in their kingdom. The other thinks that they are wonderful and Reinhardt Bonnke. The one thinks that God is unbendingly wrathful and they find it very difficult to serve him. The other thinks that God is their mate. The one is blind to the magnificence of God's mercy. The other one is blind to the magnitude of their own misery. And actually, I have faced people in both categories. And the challenge when preaching is, how do you speak to both of those categories? And I found out the answer. Don't. So here it comes. When you get a very group like you or I, and we're addressing them, there must be, because of Scripture, wrath and mercy, threat and promise, warning and comfort. There must be encouragement and conviction from the Holy Spirit. But actually, what I want to do this morning is ignore one lot of people. So if you fall into the God's my mate bit, and I'm wonderful, and you know, that sort of stuff, just switch off for a little bit. What I want to do is talk to the people who know that they think that they've gone too far to be forgiven. They think they're disqualified. They think that God is unbendingly wrathful. They, They seem to be blind to the magnificence of God's mercy. Their, their demeanor is one of being downcast. They feel they are the humble of the humbleness. They feel often broken, often hopeless, the discouraged, the ones that feel that they are beyond the reach of God's forgiveness and mercy and therefore beyond what he can do for you. I want to talk to you briefly. And I'd like to do that by looking at the way that God describes his nature. And I want to make it clear how God is describing his nature first. If I wanted to make clear to Rachel that I intended to be her father and take care of her and treat her with mercy, even though that she was not listening to me, I would firstly still try. And then what I would do is I would try in different ways. Why? Because she is my daughter and I am her father. 
And because she is my daughter and I am her father, I have to keep trying every way that I can to see that mercy will get through. So I'll just keep trying. And what we read here, firstly, is that we read a father speaking to their children. We're listening to a father. And that's why you get five expressions, but actually the five expressions are almost repeated time and time again. They're repeated because this is a father trying to convince his children that he wants to extend mercy to them. And they are not hearing him. So you'll see that a God of mercy, uh, a merciful God and gracious, a, a God who's slow to anger, a God who's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, a God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. They're related because God is wanting to approach us as Father. And that's the first lesson to those people. That is the way that God approaches you. God approaches you as a father doing his best to describe mercy to you in as many ways that he can so that you would catch it. That's it. So let's look at these. And we do this very quick. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Two images come to my mind. One because it's been told to me by my brother. The other one is because it says so in a commentary. The word abounding is described as an inexhaustible spring of water that bubbles up love and faithfulness. It's a lovely image, isn't it? A spring bubbles up every time. Love, abounding love, bubbling up. We can keep going, drink, drink again, ah, love, drink again, faithfulness, come back, love, faithfulness. That's the one image. The other image that, uh, that, that just came, came is, that, is that my brother is, is big on cruises. And this is not a cruise thing for you, Steve, or for you, David, but it's just that my brother's big on cruises. And he tells me that he has been to the famous cruise destinations of Herculaneum and Pompeii. Apparently, you all go there if you go on cruises. That's what it tells me. Now, from what I understand, I want us to catch that, that the Herculaneum and Pompeii have, 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 are the way that they are because of a, a volcano. Yes, that is the way that they are. But I want you to imagine the heart of God is like that volcano. But I want to, first of all, put you in Herculaneum and Pompeii that what happened is this volcano erupted, that dust and ash settled, and people in mid-flow of whatever they were doing were covered in it, and there they died. Whatever they were doing. And you, apparently you can see this. You can see the dog, apparently, and the, the people serving, and, and they're uncovering, uncovering it more and more. Now, the word abounding is like saying this. It's like saying a volcano that erupts and doesn't stop erupting. That must have, that'd be a nightmare if you're living back in Pompeii, wouldn't it, or Herculaneum. 
But that's what God is trying to get catch hold of us when he's describing this volcano that just keeps coming up. Except that what it does is instead of shedding dust all over us, it sheds love and faithfulness and we live. I can, if you left it on, Mick, because uh, it'd be there, cool, I'll carry on preaching. <laughs> Leave it on and say we go. Could be the first gospel message by mobile. So I want you to imagine like that. I want you to imagine the word abounding in those terms, that it comes up like a volcanic eruption, spreads miles and falls down love and faithfulness and brings life. You know, when, when God's using the word abounding, he's using it in terms of that his, his resources are not unlimited. He's actually not like the Bank of England. You may think he's like the Bank of England, but he's not. You know, whenever there's a need, the problem with the Bank of England, if, if we'd have come to it, they could have just printed some more money, shifted it all out, we could have had some more money. The difference between God is that that this resource, the depth of this volcano, is an infinite treasury that keeps on erupting. <coughs> the UK government, if it keeps printing money, are just in dream world. We are in the reality world of our God. That this volcano is erupting and erupting and erupting and all we need to do is receive this love and faithfulness again and again and again. How do I know that that should come your way? Because earlier that we said that the Lord is Yahweh, the God who is, the God who is free, the God who's almighty, the God who is merciful. It's just simply this. He's the only one who has the ability, the resource, the capacity to be able to deliver that to you. Spilling out, spilling out love, and faithfulness towards you. It's yours. It is yours. When you came into his family, you, he stood you underneath his volcano and he just erupted. And you can stand there and not be like Herculaneum and run. You can stand there and think, I'm in the kingdom of God where a love and faithfulness is a never ending experience for me. I am loved. He is faithful. Slow to anger and keeping steadfast love. Exodus 34 verse 6. When God says that he keeps steadfast love, the word is durableness of his love. It preserves. It keeps flowing. It can't stop. There's a connection between the perseverance of God's love and the statement that God is slow to anger. Here it comes. Love cannot last where anger is on the surface. 
If God's anger was just under the surface, his love would not last one day in my life. It would rocket down wrath because what would happen is that I would sin. His anger, because it is on the surface, would erupt. It would blow through the light crustiness of love and I would be blown to smithereens. Why? Because I am a sinful person. I sin every day. I have sinned today numerous times. Two people, with people, before God. We are sinful people by nature. Objects of wrath. But on Mount Sinai, he says, I'm slow to anger. What does that mean? It means such that his love for us is that the skin of love is so thick that his anger cannot penetrate through it. I'm slow to anger. Why? Because my love is enormous. That is extraordinary. That is the very thing that I can... How can I, how can I stand here knowing that I am sinful? Because he's, the crust of love is so big. It, keep, it can't come through. He's extraordinary precious. So he keeps steadfast love. He guards it and preserves it by being slow to anger. His love is greater. Merciful and forgiving. This is the final pair of statements about God. If God is slow to anger, even though we give him ample reason to be angry with us because of our sin, then he must be very merciful and forgiveness and forgiven. Merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The reason God is slow to anger is not that he doesn't notice the sin, is that he just forgives it. He forgives it. He looks down from heaven, <coughs> sees the sin, and forgives it. That is just balmy, crazy, stupid. But wonderful, but absolutely wonderful, and not kind. Uh, some kind. I don't even, have you ever heard this before? Well, there are some sins that God does not forgive. Have you heard that one before? Let's do a theological journey on this. This is theological poppycock. <laughs> I have never heard so much baloney in all my life. Because what you're saying, firstly, is that Jesus died on the cross, and when he got to the cross, those ones did not get nailed to it. What that means then, therefore, here's the first thing, that Jesus needs to come back again in our lifetime, be nailed on the cross, so that the sins of the ones that he didn't die for can be dealt with. That means there is no second return of Christ. It means that there's a second return for the cross. That can't be right. Because by Jove, when he comes back, I'm going with him. Don't get excited. Okay. But let's look at this passage. Here we go. 
Can we be forgiven from all kinds of sin? Yes! Here it is. The look at the words. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. What does that mean? It means everything. Everything. The transgressions. But I've never transgressed. No, but you've sinned. But I've never sinned. No, but you've transgressed. Over here. And what about the iniquity? Well, they're in the middle and it's pulling me between. What it means is that those God dealt with on the cross, these God dealt with on the cross, these God dealt with on the cross, you are qualified. Thank you. Because I'm knackered. It means what Hebrews said, therefore you can approach the throne of God with confidence. You can, because Jesus has dealt with everything and he's not coming back to do the second part. Thank you. Somebody's out there. So, I want to finish with a nice reminder and a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He's not me dad. (laughs) Jesus Christ, put it on. Learn, Nigel. Came into the world to confirm that God is who he said he was on Mount Sinai. How do I prove that I am who I say I am? Light on. I know. I will send my son. How can they see mercy physically? How can they see that I am slow to anger? How can they see steadfast love? How can they catch it? How can I do this? I'll send Jesus. They will be able to see and hear and touch and feel My heart, it will be a living demonstration of who I am. Good idea, God. Fantastic idea. Who thought that up? He did. What a wonderful idea. I'm blown by it. How do I know that God will be like this with me? The answer is because he sent his son. Because his son lived it. And because his son demonstrated it. Let me read to you one verse. Ephesians 4. No, it's several verses. Ephesians 4, verses... Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, who is rich in mercy... There's the link. Out of the great love which he loved us, He's our state. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. You have been raised up with him. You sit with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In that the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in whom Jesus Christ. 
Just listen. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive. Who with? Jesus. We were captive to the prince of the power of this age. We were enslaved by the course of this world, but God raised us up with Jesus. And he made us to sit in heavenly places with him. That's just crazy. We were children of wrath. We deserved punishment. But God, instead of pouring out wrath, demonstrated his immeasurable riches by sending Jesus to die for us. But God... What a, wonder, what a wonderful thing. I believe Spurgeon does a whole series on it. But not Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones. But God. But God demonstrated it. How do I know that I can receive mercy? Because I just look at Jesus and say, it's there before me. It is there before me. A living, breathing person came to die so that I might receive mercy. What a saviour. Here comes the Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon, in what ways, excuse the language, in what ways has the Lord shown, the Lord, the Lord shown his tender mercy in deigning to visit us? I answer first, God's great visit to us in the incarnation of our blessed Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Many visits to God and men have been paid before that. Read your Bibles and see. But the most wonderful visit of all was when he came to tarry here some 30 years and more to work out our salvation. What but tender mercy, hearty mercy, intense mercy could bring the great God to visit us so closely that he actually assumed our nature. Kings may visit their subjects, but they do not think of taking upon themselves their poverty, their sickness, or their sorrow. They could, not if they would, and would not if they could. This were more than we could expect from them. But our divine Lord, when he came hither, came into flesh, he veiled his Godhead in a robe of inferior clay. O children, the Lord so visited you as to become a babe. Then a child who dwelt with his parents and was subject to them and grew in statures, stature, as you must do. O working men, the Lord also visited you as to become the carpenter's son, so that he might know about your toil and your weariness, aye, even your hunger and your faintness. O sons of men, Jesus Christ has visited you so as so as to be tempted in all points like you are, though without sin. He really assumed our nature and thus paid us a very close visit. He took our sickness. He bore our infirmities. This 
was a kind of visit as none could have thought of granting save the tender mercy of God. Jesus, the demonstration of the tender mercy of God. Don't don't you think, don't I love him? (laughs) I can give it you in the Old Testament. I can give it you by visiting Moses. Now, I'll send him to you so that you can look at him and enjoy him and wonder at him and wonder at the tender mercy of God found in Jesus.